Hello and welcome to the Holland Bridge Rulers podcast. On today's episode, David Flatt will continue our look at mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis with another look at Christian behavior. All right, guys, good morning. Um, first time teaching with a microphone on, so this is a little different. Um, listen, good morning. Glad you're all here this morning. Um, it's a Bridge Builders class to see some new faces, so maybe we can uh, get to meet you afterwards or whatever. I'm really excited you're here. We're right in the middle of a series on the book Mere Christianity. Um, and so this is uh, maybe been, other than the Bible, the most impactful book that I've ever read. Really has shaped my worldview in a lot of ways. And um, so it's something I'm really excited about to get to talk about this morning. So this slide is a picture of the lamppost from Narnia. Who's read the Chronicles of Narnia? Most of us, some of us. All right, so um, right now I'm reading The Magician's Nephew with my five-year-old, which is the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in this book, it talks a little bit about how the lamppost came to be in Narnia at the first time, at, in the first place. I won't spoil it, but it's pretty cool, pretty cool story. The point is, though, the lamppost sits on the boundary of our world in Narnia, and it shines this light, and somewhere just beyond the lamppost back here or something is the wardrobe, of course, so the four children come through the wardrobe and into Narnia, and then years later find their way back to the wardrobe and back to our world. But right at the edge, at the boundary, is this light, the lamppost. And I think that light says something uh, about a lot of things. Of course, everything in Narnia means something far beyond what it is. It's kind of one of those things like you read it when you're five, and Allie loves it because there's like a witch and a a lion and elves and stuff and then I read it and I love it because it means something so much deeper and um, I think as we get older and read it again and again it means more and more but there's a lamppost there that I think says something special about Christian behavior so but before we get in to kind of today's lesson I want to say a few things about C.S. Lewis so this is a guy um, that is just really if I was going to list like the 20 most influential people in my life Probably one of them would be a guy that died a couple of decades before I was born. So C.S. Lewis wrote these books that have just totally shaped the way I think about so many things. I think for the better, have challenged me in some areas, have really been there for me in times of, of um, spiritual struggle, have helped me think through problems or think through questions, just meant the world to me. One of my favorite stories, maybe the, maybe the most famous doctor in America is a guy named Francis Collins. I don't know if anybody knows who this guy is, but he led the federal portion of the Human Genome Project. So the, the government-funded portion to, to crack the genome, you know, solve the, the human DNA puzzle, happened like in the late 90s, early 2000s. He was the guy that led it. I mean, one of the greatest doctors in the world. So like a lot of kind of scientifically oriented, scientifically minded people, he was an agnostic, atheist worldview, and he was seeing a patient one day, this poor, older woman, uh, economically poor, didn't have a lot of money. He was seeing her in like a charity clinic and she asked him some kind of meaning of life questions and he, his answers of course were kind of dark and terrible like a, an agnostic or atheist answers would be. You know, what's the meaning of life? Where are you going when you die? He, he realized, man, maybe my answers are true but they're not very encouraging. And uh, so it sent him on a spiritual journey. He read Mere Christianity, landed there, and through the process of reading C.S. Lewis, became a Christian, and now has written like all these great apologetic Christian books about how medicine and science and faith interact. And so C.S. Lewis, through, both through his influence on individuals and then leaders in different spheres of influence, has just made an unbelievable impact in the world. And maybe his greatest impact is this book that we've been studying, Mere Christianity. And so. Kyle did a better job than probably could ever be done explaining what is mere Christianity, who is C.S. Lewis, how does all this fit together. But I know some of you guys are kind of jumping in, maybe you're visiting, maybe you weren't here for Kyle's intro, but I think it's important to kind of understand 
what mere Christianity is. It's really four books. It's not just one book. It's four separate books. And it's really not even four books. It's four different talks. So right after World War II, um, you can imagine Great Britain is in a time of kind of spiritual, emotional, economic turmoil, kind of recovering from World War II. And the British Broadcasting Corporation asked C.S. Lewis to give these radio addresses. So he gave four or three separate radio addresses that were so popular that they turned in to these little pamphlets that he wrote. So these three addresses turned into four books. These pamphlets were so popular, they put them all together to make one book, Mere Christianity, which has become you know, one of the great classics of Christian literature. So we've already talked about book one. Grant talked about book one, right and wrong is a key to the meaning of the universe. And uh, I would really encourage you guys to go back and listen to that on the podcast. It's really a a, a good summary of, of Lewis's argument there. We don't have time to go into, into it today, but essentially we all understand that right and wrong exist, that there is a moral law. Whether or not you're a, a Christian or not, you understand some things really are wrong. And so the question is, why do we understand and comprehend that there is a moral law if there's not such a thing as a moral law giver? And I think as we think about that, there, we come, can come to more and more conclusions about the nature of the universe. Then we talked about what Christians believe. Winston did this two weeks ago. Talked about kind of the core beliefs of Christianity. And right now we're in book three. We're right in the middle of book three. Juwan talked last week about the first six chapters of book three, Christian behavior. And today we're going to talk about the last six chapters uh, in book three on Christian behavior. So that's where we are in the middle of the book and what we're going to talk about today. I would be remiss, though, if I didn't take just a minute to talk about what mere Christianity is. And to do this, I think we should use what I think is one of the best illustrations or illusions uh, that Lewis has used, a guy that's a master of metaphor, illusion, illustration, kind of the creative uh, um, aspects of theology, how to explain things. But in mere Christianity, Lewis imagines this great hall. So in the, in the you know, um, world of Great Britain and kings and queens, you have the, these great halls where you would often have banquets. You all meet together in a large room. And outside of the great hall would often be all these doors to go into different rooms and different aspects of the castle itself. And so Lewis's metaphor of the book Mere Christianity is that Mere Christianity is like the great hall. It's the place where Christians across time and places and generations and even denominations can come together and, and celebrate and share the things that have been common to almost all Christians in almost all times about what, what we believe and how we behave. So that's what the name of the book is, Mere Christianity, Merely Christianity, right? It's the idea that it's only Christianity. So Lewis doesn't say that there aren't important distinctions between Christians. In his metaphor, the, in the hall, these are actually doors into the different groups of Christianity, right? So you could imagine, uh, you know, kind of if you want to, in layman's terms, maybe this is the Baptist door, this is the Church of Christ door, this is the Episcopalian door, this is the Roman Catholic door. There's different doors and different distinctions between the Christian community. Some of those distinctions are important, right? I, there's a reason I'm in this door and not in this door, right? I have disagreements with Christian brothers and sisters about different kind of secondary aspects of Christianity. But the important point of mere Christianity, the book, is it's an invitation not into this room or this room, but it's an invitation to everyone outside the hall to come into the great hall in the first place. So it's an explanation of what it is that Christians believe and have in common. And then there may be other books or other conversations or other prayer journeys or other ways that you want to go and about figuring out which room is going to be best fit for your theology, 
for your comfort level, for the community that you're looking to establish. But the great invitation is not into room one or two, but into the hall of mere Christianity from the outside. I think it's such a beautiful illustration that it describes really what Christianity should be about, right? The great call of Christianity isn't to come into room two versus room three, but to come into the great hall where the Spirit lives. Which leads us to the book we're talking about today, book three of mere Christianity. So Jawan talked about these first six chapters last week, the three parts of morality, the cardinal virtues, social morality, morality and psychoanalysis, sexual morality, and Christian marriage. Right, so we ran through those six chapters, and so today we're going to start at chapter 7 and run through chapter 12. Okay, so those chapters are forgiveness, then we're going to talk about the great sin, then charity and hope, and then Lewis spends the last two chapters on faith. Chapters 11 and 12 are both called faith. So I had a hard time thinking about how do you teach this, right? So I don't know, I would hope that most of you guys have read Mere Christianity, but one of the problems in teaching mere Christianity is I think Lewis has said all this stuff about as well as it could be said, right? So the idea that I'm going to stand up here and like better summarize what chapter 7, what Lewis's chapter on forgiveness says than Lewis said it in the first place is just absurd. The idea that I could say it shorter than he said I think is also not true. I mean, mere Christianity is not a big book. He's really condensed it to around every word means something. I mean, every sentence means a lot. So the idea that I'm going to like shorten the number of sentences to express an idea that Lewis said is, is also absurd. So I can't say it better than he said it. I can't say it shorter than he said it. So how do I teach it, right? I, I, I really kind of struggled with that the past couple weeks. List, I listened to it twice. I read it once. Really, how do I say this any better than he said it? So here's where I landed. One, is this slide is to remind me to encourage you, if you're a Christian or if you're interested in Christianity or if you think you may want to become a Christian one day, you owe it to yourself to read mere Christianity. It's like 160, 170 pages. It's not that long. I think it's about the best description of why Christians believe what we believe, what we believe, how we behave, and what we're looking forward to that there is. Right? I, I think you really owe it to yourself to read that book. Then secondly, I thought, well, maybe I'll just stand up here and read large portions of the book to you guys and just let you listen. I thought that would be a disaster, right? So Trey, I, I told Trey Clemens this morning, I, was like, I said, I thought about doing that. And he said, I'm glad you didn't because I would not have listened to that. And so that's not what we're going to do this morning. What I'm going to do, I picked out one or two quotes from every chapter that I thought were just especially profound. And I'm just going to talk about that quote and kind of what it means. I hope that what this will do will encourage you to go back and read the quote in, contact, in context and catch Lewis's larger vision. Okay? So the first chapter we're talking about is forgiveness. So this is the Christian virtue of forgiveness. To understand kind of where Lewis is coming from, like every great author, Lewis is writing in history, right? So C.S. Lewis isn't sitting outside of the time and place where he wrote sending a message, right? Only the Holy Spirit in, in some ways can do that. But even then, the, like the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write something in Paul's historical setting. And I don't think the Holy Spirit inspired, inspired C.S. Lewis the same way he inspired Paul. But the point is, C.S. Lewis was living in post-World War II Great Britain. And so he was dealing with specific issues and challenges to Christianity that were uh, present in that time and culture. Right? And so one of the things you can imagine, if you lived there, if you lived on this island that had been a great empire over centuries and had in the last three or four years seen its existence threatened, right? there were a couple of months where like 
the Englishmen weren't sure like they were going to keep their island, right? All those great Winston Churchill speeches, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the towns. Like they, they were scared, right? And also they were confronted with real evil, right? Maybe the best description of evil in like our modern era. You think about what Nazism was, what Nazism almost accomplished. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a common Englishman, proud of his country, was fearful for its existence, and angry at what had happened to both him and to the continent of Europe, um, you would see how forgiveness would be a weird thing. It would be a tough thing. In fact, forgiveness was often criticized in the Christian religion in that time and place because people were saying, why should we forgive the Nazis for what they did to the Jewish people? A challenge that Lewis addresses directly in this quote is that if you were in one of the Nazi concentration camps, I bet you would be a lot less interested in this virtue of forgiveness. Right? If you had been tortured in a concentration camp, you probably wouldn't be as interested in forgiving your tormentors as you, as you are kind of sitting in your office in a leather chair uh, writing about this. So here's what Lewis says. I'm not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I'm telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. So this first part of the quote, I think, is Christian teaching at its best, right? So, of course, the Christian teacher should try to model what it is he's teaching, right? But the standard for Christian teaching is not my behavior, right? Is not the behavior of any teacher. And it's not even what I would do if I was in a different situation. So I can imagine that me as a sinful man would fall into all sorts of sins if my life and situation had been different. So if I'd had a different upbringing, I may have more proclivity for certain um, kinds of sins, right? If I had had a different genetic predisposition, I may be disposed to certain sins and to do certain things. So maybe if circumstances were different, I would be prone to different sins than I am. And in the situations I am in, I'm prone to sin, right? But that's really not the point, And that's not the understanding of Christian teaching. The understanding of Christian teaching is you tell the truth. You tell the truth. So maybe, maybe if I had been in a Nazi concentration camp and had been tormented, I think it's probably unlikely that I would have a heart of Christian forgiveness. I think it is interesting to point out that some people who were in that situation have had remarkable levels of forgiveness and, and, and grace, but I don't know that I would. But it doesn't change the truth that part of Christian living, part of Christian virtue is a heart of forgiveness. So he says, and there, right in the middle of it, in the middle of Christianity, I find forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. So it's tough, right? There's people in this room that have been sinned against in profound ways, in ways that we might even say are unforgivable, right? But the truth is, Christian behavior, Christian virtue calls us to be forgiving people. And in some kind of mysterious spiritual way, our forgiving of others is tied to God's forgiveness of us. I can't go much further with that because I don't understand it all, but there is some mystery there. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Hey man, you looking for a chair? Come on, come on, come here. We're glad you're here, man. All right, so that is the Christian virtue of forgiveness. That's chapter 7. So chapter 8 is the idea of the great sin. Okay, the great sin. Anybody want to throw out, I guess maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't. What do you think is the greatest sin? Any thoughts? 
Nobody. That's a tough question to answer. Cause, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and since I've read it, I'm fixing to. Okay, we'll just move on then. So the greatest sin, I think part of Lewis's point is it's not what we would expect. It's not what we would expect. So the greatest sin, Lewis says, is pride. Here's the quote. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, that would be um, you know, sexual sin. Anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So again, I can't say this better than Lewis has. You really ought to go read the chapter on the great sin. But Lewis gives two reasons why pride is so spiritually destructive. Okay? The first is that pride cannot exist with humility. Right? They are antithesis of each other. And humility is the essential Christian virtue to become a Christian. Right? So maybe different from other religions, maybe even different from a caricature of Christianity that you may have been taught or believe or see on television, the essential Christian virtue of humility is because in order to be a Christian, we have to recognize how weak and incapable of being the people we're called to be we actually are. Right? So there's, there's maybe an idea out there that Christians are good people who almost reach up to God by themselves and then God helps them on the last two or three steps. Right? We, you, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we even kind of think that. Right? I think like I'm a pretty good guy. If I list off these seven or eight big sins, I don't do any of them. I've almost made it to God. And then because I come to church, God will lift me the past couple of steps. But that is not Christianity. That's some kind of like moralistic deism, you know, like the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. That's some kind of like American religious idea. That's not Christianity. The idea of Christianity is that we are all sinners, deserving of wrath, incapable of reaching in any way to God on our own. And out of that recognition, we seek out to God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit to be rejoined and reconciled to God forever. So what does it take to have that kind of disposition? To, to view yourself as, as Revelation would say, a worm. To view yourself as nothing, as incapable of reaching God by, on your own. You have to have an incredible position of humility. And so if you have a position of pride, it's almost impossible to be a true Christian. Because a true Christian is looking to Jesus Christ to make up for a gap between you and God that you could never make up on your own. That's the most important reason pride is so destructive. The second reason pride is so destructive is because pride leads to all the other sins. Right? So let's, let's just imagine the sin of greed. Well, if you're a prideful person, if you think you should have the best in all the pleasures and comforts of life, it, that's going to lead to greed. That's going to lead to covetousness. That's going to lead to the pursuit of money and wealth and things beyond the pursuit of God. Or think of sexual sin. If you think that the purpose of your life is to accumulate and experience the most pleasure as you can possibly because you're such a good person, you're so prideful, you deserve it. You hear that kind of language around sexual sin well, then you're going to fall right into sexual sin because you've elevated yourself to the standard. The greatest good is to accomplish the great things for the proud person. And so pride is so destructive. And so part of Christian behavior is having an attitude of anti-pride, having an attitude of humility. Chapter 9 is charity. So charity, we think of as giving money to good causes, right? That's what we think of as charity. One of the things that's so cool uh, about reading mere Christianity of course, it's in English. He, you know, C.S. Lewis was in England. He writes in English. But it's also like 
it's British. So he spells words like weird, like that's not phonetically how you, that word should be spelled. One of the things that's kind of neat, very like American about the development of the English language in America. So you think about kind of these independent, self-autonomous, I'm going to conquer the world type people came across the Atlantic Ocean, came to America. They start looking at these words in English that are spelled kind of weird. So think of like center. I think, I think the word center I just used. So in, in England, they spell it C-E-N-T-R-E. That's how they spell center. So these kind of self-actualizing people come over and they say, we're going to do things that make common sense. And that's ridiculous to spell center that way. We're going to spell center the way it sounds. So we started spelling center C-E-N-T-E-R, right? That makes sense. That's like, so we're Americans. We're going to do things that make sense. Well, Lewis writes in British. So it's, it's neat to kind of see like how he spells words a little differently, how he thinks a little differently. So the word charity to him means love right and he and he kind of explains what he means by charity but the christian idea of charity is the idea that we love people but not in kind of the flimsy 2017 postmodern i love everybody but really to love people to wish the best for people to want people even your enemies even people you have the strongest disagreements with even in people who you could never imagine for your own pleasure spending time with them you love them and you want the best for them here's how lewis says it but love, in the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. It is the state, not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. So use the example, if you think about yourself, do you agree with everything that you do? Well, I don't, right? I'm a sinful guy that does a lot of things that I wish I hadn't done or wouldn't do. But do I wish the best for myself? Well, of course. What kind of person wants bad things for themselves? What kind of person doesn't want to live a meaningful life full of fulfillment and enjoyment and meaningful experiences? And that's the position we should have towards the world. So there's going to be people in the world who behave and believe things that are really uncomfortable to us. It, love towards them does not mean that we embrace their error or that we celebrate their sin or that we join in with them and whatever we find disagreeable. The position of love is that you wish the best for that person. You genuinely want good for your enemies. You hope that um, someone engaged in a sinful behavior, engaged in, in Lewis's example, trying to conquer your nation, people of extreme degrees of evilness, you wish for them that they would see a better path, that they would see a light of goodness and live a good life. So the position of, the position of charity views a, a Nazi bomber flying over England, not as I hope um, that he's struck down and goes to hell tonight, but views his position as I hope good for that Nazi, that he, that he finds a better life, that he discovers God, repents of his sins, and turns. That, of course, is incredibly countercultural, right? We don't wish good for our enemies, but Christianity does. Here's the other thing that Lewis points out. Love, we often think of as an emotion, right? Because we are a product of 2017 American culture. And love is an emotion in one sense, right? You feel love towards other people. But at its core, love is not really an emotion. It's a choice. And so I like the distinction he makes here. It's, it's a state not of the feelings, but of the will. So there, are there going to be times when there are people that you love, whether it be a husband, a wife, even a child, a parent, maybe a co-worker, a friend, who you don't have deep butterflies in your stomach and a feeling of loving embrace for, of course. 
Of course you feel that way. And so what do you do in that setting? What if you feel that way towards a God? Right? Have you ever been there? You're, I know I should love God. But man, I don't feel like loving God right now. Maybe things in your life are not going well. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe things in your life are just normal. Like it just seems like a Tuesday. Right? And I'm not f- feeling like sitting on a mountaintop, I will sing of your love forever. I'm, it's just Tuesday. Right? I wonder what's on like TV tonight. So what do, you, what do you do in those moments? I think this is great advice. You ask yourself, if I were sure that I love God, what would I do? When you found the answer, go and do it. Like, that's good. Like, that is good advice. That's good marriage advice. If I were sure that I love Lauren, what would I do? When I found the answer to that, I should go and do it. Right? That's good advice. That will, I mean, that'll preach right there. That'll get you through, you know, a tough Tuesday afternoon when things seem boring. Okay, so that's the idea of Christian charity. Again, you should read this chapter. He says it a lot better than I did. Hope. This is good. It's the idea of Christian hope. So we think of hope as wishful thinking, right? That's kind of what you think hope is. I hope Tennessee somehow doesn't ruin my fall this year, right? Let's not lose to Vanderbilt. Let's Let's do things the right way. Hope, in the Christian sense, though, is confident expectation. We're confident of something that's going to happen in the future. And that confidence and that expectation shapes the way we think and the way we behave in the present. Okay, so this is a long quote. I'll kind of pause in between it and kind of tell you what I think about it, and uh, we'll just go from there. So let me also say this is important in uh, Christian circles in our culture right now. There's some errors that either Lewis saw in his own time or maybe he saw foreshadows of in the future that he's addressing here that I, th- I think is really helpful. So let's, let's walk through this. A continual looking toward the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. So do you ever kind of hear that, desire, hear that thought or maybe just kind of it's out in the ether around us, the idea that Christians are no good in this world or if, if you're only thinking about heaven, then what good are you in this world? Or you might even say like, Somebody might say, like, if all, all Christianity is is an effort to, like, not go to hell and believe a couple things and just get on with it. Like, you know, Christianity is just fire insurance. You heard, you heard that joke before? So that's the, the, that's the criticism Lewis is addressing here. He's saying modern people think that Christianity is a form of escapism or wishful thinking, right? But one of the things, Christian, one of the things Christians is meant to do is have a continual looking forward. Right? So we're supposed to be always looking for That's what hope is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. If you want to make a difference in 2017 America, you should have your mind obsessed with what's going to be happening 10,000 years from now. Right? You are a forever person. You will exist in a resurrected body for all time and eternity. In 10,000, 100,000, a billion years from now, your person will exist. And that thought should influence the way that you think and behave every day. The apostles themselves who set on foot the the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. So you hear this idea, are we going to be a church that talks about saving souls? 
Are we going to be a church that focuses on finding the lost and redeeming them and uniting them to Christ for eternity? Or are we going to be a church that focuses on real important social issues that are plaguing our culture right now? Issues of racism, issues of poverty, issues of injustice, issues like abortion. Are we going to be a a church that focuses on the social issues? Are we going to be a church that focuses on the spiritual issues? Lewis's point is that's a false dichotomy. That's not the way that true Christian thinking should, should follow. The idea is we should be obsessed with the soul obsessed with the soul of every single person on the planet and we should be obsessed with the suffering especially eternal suffering of every soul on the planet and so the true christian worldview is obsessed with relieving poverty and suffering in all its forms because we believe every person on the planet was made in the image of god and will exist in one form or another ten thousand years from now so if you have that worldview of course you care about the slave trade right? You're going to like turn over some tables. You're going to make a difference because you're so obsessed with what you do is not just for time and it's not just for time. You're not just going to die, be placed in a coffin, decompose. We now make coffins that decompose over like 200 year periods. That shows just the way we're thinking, right? We're thinking we want to protect everything in this world because this world is what matters. But it's not all that matters, right? And so the way we think about eternity should impact the way we think about Tuesday. And so Christian hope, that's an essential Christian virtue. And the reason he put it in Christian behavior is is a Christian who has a confident expectation about the future will live a certain way today. And the idea that we try to separate these things I think is foolish. I think it kind of misses the point. I think it's hard to be motivated to, to care for the suffering in the world when the suffering in the world is not connected to something greater, namely humans made in the image of God who will live forever. Okay, last two chapters. Chapter 11 and 12 are both called Faith. Lewis, I think, addresses something kind of interesting here in the first chapter on faith. This idea of what faith is and how it interacts with doubt, emotion, and reason. So Lewis's background, most of you guys probably know, but Lewis was an atheist, right? Did not believe in Christianity and then converted in adulthood to Christianity. So that colors almost, you know, almost every chapter in the book, you see that in the background. This idea of Lewis is trying to respond or help or encourage Christians who are doubting or have important questions in one way or another. So one of these ideas is the idea of Christian faith. How can you believe the truth claims of Christianity? Some of which are pretty big and bold, right? The idea that God created the universe, sent his son, loved you enough that he wanted to die for you, rose from the dead, conquered sin, is going to live with you for eternity. How do we believe and make sense of those? That's really what the first book is about. He gets into some of these things about who Jesus is, um, about what the moral law means, and kind of all that fits together. So you can tell Lewis is interested in the faith of the doubter because the first fourth of his book is addressing those questions and trying to make a case for Christianity. This chapter is about after you've reasoned out and understood the arguments and thoughts and had maybe a spiritual experience that brought you to Christ, what do you do when things get normal, right? So what do you do when you're suffering on a Tuesday or maybe it could be a Thursday. I don't want to be too mean to Tuesdays. What do you do when you don't feel like you have faith, right? What do you do when uh, suffering seems so big, when questions seem so large, when you're exposed to a new idea or a new thought and you seem confused? Well, Lewis says this is the Christian virtue of faith. It's the idea 
that faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. So uh, Lewis uses this funny idea about like um, <clears throat> what you ate, like your digestion. So he says you, you can't, your faith can't wane and go back and forth based on what you ate for dinner. Right? Just because your moods change, you can't change what you've reasoned or thought out. So Lewis, maybe more than anybody, maybe has even been criticized for so, is very, a very reasonable, objective, scientific type thinking guy, not a very emotional guy. So he says you should think out your faith. You should understand that Christianity makes sense. You should work that out with your reason. Okay? But once you've done that, you need to understand that humans are not physics problems. Right? We're not predictable in the way that you can chart out a line on a graph. We have emotions and moods, and those moods and emotions will come and go. And so we need to be people of virtue and courage to hold on to the things we've reasoned out, even when our moods change and we don't feel like it. That makes sense? Otherwise, your worldview is prone to change based on if you got the one or two enchilada plate. Right? And we, that's not where we want to be. Okay, second chapter on faith. I'm just going to read this quote and we'll kind of break it down. So Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue. Yet it leads you on, out of all that, into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of these things except perhaps as a joke. So you, you feel that? Christianity, I mean, I've been talking about behavior for 25 minutes. It seems like what Christianity is is a call to a certain moral code, a way of living. But as we go beyond that, it seems like we're going somewhere different where people are no longer obsessed and thinking about morality. Everyone there in this other country is filled full with what we should call goodness as a, as a mirror is filled with light, but they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They are not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. But this is near the stage where the road passes over the rim of our world. No one's eyes can see very far beyond that. So there's this idea, there's an, the idea of faith calls us to a life, an eternal life, where we're no longer going to be obsessed with important concepts like right and wrong, duties, virtue, goodness, sin. We're just going to be a reflection of the goodness. And in fact, we're going to be so good that we're not going to be the kind of people that are obsessed or thinking about our own goodness or honor. You ever met somebody that's, that's a really good person or a really humble person or a really honorable or courageous person? People who have huge amounts of those kind of virtues often don't even understand that they have them, right? Once you become courageous, you never think about, about having courage. You just are that. That's what Lewis is saying we're becoming. We're being transformed through faith into the kind of people who shine goodness so bright that we don't even think, or we don't even think about or evaluate our own goodness or the goodness of the people who live in our country. So that brings us back to the lamppost. And it's here at the lamppost, the boundary between this world and the next, where Christian behavior shines the brightest. The Christian life is not something that shines for its own sake or by its own power, but is merely a flicker of the truth that faithfully, hopefully, and charitably shines the way home where the, where the Father of all lights will shine forever. So think about the very end of the Bible, like the very, the last, some of the last verses in the last chapter. John says, oh, I'm sorry, this is Jesus. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. 
So that's the eternal country, right? The idea that the goodness and the morality and the behavior that we're all seeking in this world will be shown brighter than, than we could ever shine it. So this little light of mine, that light is going to be the Father, right? He will shine in his eternal kingdom. So I want to close with a paragraph that's really special to me. This is the last paragraph in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series. So I know most of you have probably read it, but maybe not all of you, so I don't want to give too much away because you should read it. You should go read it. But this is at the very end. The last book is called The Last Battle. So you can imagine what happens. You have the last battle in the Narnian world. And at the end of the battle, um, the narrator says this at the very end. And as he spoke... So if you don't know anything about, so there's a lion, his name is Aslan, okay? And he's the, he's the Christ-like figure, okay? In the allegory, he's the, he's the Christ-like figure. So and he, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Thank you, guys. So I want to thank David for doing an excellent job with class. You know, it is David that organizes, uh, you know, the lessons that we do in the Bridge Builders class, and so he came up with this curriculum. He's done an excellent job with that. I was really grateful to, to be able to hear him teach today, and I'm thankful to you for listening. Uh, we've had a lot of people listening to this podcast and hopefully getting a lot out of it, and so wherever you are today or tonight listening to this, I hope you're having a great week, and I hope you're having a great day, and I wish you the best. We'll see you back next week uh, for another episode. We have two episodes left on the Book of Mere Christianity, and we will see you then.